It's Monday, February 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, my friend. Happy Monday. I'm sorry I don't have any opening act that I can really... Uh you know, start this show off and I was waste looking, I was looking for a minutes. I was looking for a musical number, kind of like we had last night with the Academy Awards. Oh, I was thinking in honor of last night's show, we could stretch <laughs> this one out to. This is going to be a four-hour edition of Morgan <laughs> folks. So just go ahead and buckle up. We've got a lot to talk about today. Exactly, and just like the Academy Awards, we're just going to go way <laughs> deep into the weeds. So yes, it'll be our longest episode ever. Uh, we're going to talk about the business of the Academy Awards. We'll dip into the mailbag. Uh, let's start though with Procter and Gamble. And here's a fun little tidbit I just learned. Procter & Gamble, when do you think Procter & Gamble began as a business? I'm going to guess Procter & Gamble is around 80 years old. I, I honestly don't know. You're off by 100 years. Wow. Procter & Gamble started in 1837. William Procter, a candle maker, teamed up with James Gamble, a soap maker, Candles and soap. Candles and soap. I mean, you're taking a bath. You want to be able to kind of see what's going on. Exactly. So, Procter & Gamble has obviously grown in the ensuing 178 years and is now this behemoth. And you know what? Whoever you are, there's a really safe bet that you've got a Procter & Gamble product in your home right now when you consider their enormous portfolio of Hair care, personal care, beauty, um, home cleaners, paper towels, everything. And you're probably Shit. an investor in Procter and Gable, even if you don't, you know, directly own shares. I mean, chances are you own piece of a fund or something that owns sure through your four hundred one k plan or S and P five hundred index fund. Um, but P and G in the news because they've apparently decided that bigger is no longer better, and they're going to be cutting one hundred brands from their portfolio, and. Obviously, they're going to take a hit in the short term in terms of just lower sales, but I have to believe that they are not doing this lightly, that they have looked at everything they're doing and decided, okay, because they've been, let's be clear, they've been cutting for a while. Procter & Gamble used to, uh, their portfolio used to include food products, and they decided a few years back that they were going to start cutting those, but apparently that's not enough. It seems like the right move. I'm just wondering what you think as an analyst, how long it takes to have a positive impact on the stock. Because over the lifetime of the stock, it has been a vast outperformer. Right. But we talk about, hey, look, you you need to be thinking in five and 10 year increments. You go back over the last five years, this stock is losing badly to the market. Yes, you're getting a steady dividend. When you look at this move, what goes through your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge company. It's closing in on two hundred and fifty billion dollars. But but I think you you know you're right in that. I mean, it it, the last five years or so, it's it's been really a trying to figure out where do you go from here. I mean, what do they do from here? Do you just keep on tacking on brands and 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 you know trying to remain relevant in the American consumer's home. Um, I mean, this is obviously not a company that's going to be taking any kind of a tech bent anytime soon. Um, you see them partnering up with Amazon to a degree in some cases to to provide some some warehousing space for products that Procter & Gamble makes so that they can distribute that to the consumer's home via Amazon's uh, distribution model. So I so I see them, you know, embracing sort of the 21st century e-commerce uh, you know, sort of trend slowly but surely. But yeah, I think with with a at some point you you get to where it becomes 
more or less unmanageable and you're sort of out of your scope of, of real talent or your scope of jurisdiction. It reminds me, uh, yeah, I've, I've talked about this book a few times, but it really serves as a, as a wonderful example on a number of fronts here. But the uh, the, um, the the Coca-Cola Capitalism book that I've been reading, uh, Citizen Coke, uh, tells the story of, of Coca-Cola from from back in the in the very beginning, and and one one part that was very interesting it's 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 a chapter on on Coca-Cola and caffeine and how it dealt with its caffeine supply. And longtime supplier was Monsanto. At some point, General Foods stepped in there and became a bigger supplier, uh, due in in part to the the general decaf craze of the late fifties, early sixties. So Coke was able to buy that surplus of caffeine from them. At some point, though, along the line, Coca-Cola, the powers that be at Coca-Cola, decided, hey, you know, why don't it seems like there's this big opportunity in coffee, right? So let's try our hand at coffee. And so what they did is they bought Minute Maid, which obviously is very well known for its uh, orange juice, frozen orange juice concentrate uh, supply. But but it was also a uh, the second biggest processor of instant coffee at the time. Uh, so when they did this, they took on a lot of assets that they had never owned before. To that point, Coca Cola had done a really good job of sort of you know, putting the responsibility on everyone else, whether it be for water or caffeine or whatnot, they just kind of, you know, use their formula and put it to work. But they did this, they took on a bunch of assets that they'd never really managed before, uh, acres upon acres of citrus groves, coffee processing plants through the subsidiary Tenco. And, and as a benefit, it now also happened to become its own caffeine supplier via this acquisition. You know, long story short, they had issues with coffee supplies. They couldn't compete with other premier coffee brands in the market. The advent of synthetic caffeine really put a put a damper on them being their own supplier of caffeine. And, and so you saw where Coca-Cola, in trying to branch out and do something else, become bigger. Uh, really, they failed at it. They ended up getting rid of all of all of those assets and sort of getting back to really what they know how to do best. And I think that was a good sort of example of they recognized that pretty quickly. Um, and kind of got out while the getting was still good. I mean, obviously, Minute Maid is something that works out pretty well for them still today. Uh, but I think that uh, you know the coffee example and the caffeine example is a good one where maybe Procter and Gamble at some point they're stepping outside of their scope of competency there, and they need to kind of whittle it back here and get back to you know, doing a few things and doing them really well. And there's nothing uh, about this story that makes me think, well, this is just. They're doomed, or 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 that it, they can't turn it around. In part because they're dealing with consumer products that people need to buy. Yes, whether it's good times or bad, and you know this is this is one of those stocks that when there is a, a recession, uh, any kind of economic downturn, there there are analysts out there saying, "Well, look, these are the stocks you want to buy because people are not going to stop buying toilet paper." Just because there's a recession on, correct. And I mean, I think that really what that shows you is uh, a stock that could be very uh, attractive to hold for long-term investors who are looking for that stability um, and a stock that's going to reward them with a consistent and growing dividend over time. And really, in the profitability side of things, you know, when we invest, we invest either in, in in we're looking for lower risk versus higher risk, and this is kind of one of those lower risk investments that you know it's it's not going to be something that doubles overnight. Of course, not there, but but it is something that, like you said, it's 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 a very reliable company because they sell things that people need, and people aren't going to stop needing them. And so, if you favor the trends of a growing population over time. 
Uh, if you favor the trends of consumer spending over time, these are all pretty reliable trends here in the United States, certainly. Um, and, and then seeing that they are sort of playing into that that e-commerce space and in learning new ways to get their goods out to people, um, you know, in, in different ways. I, I think that you know something like a Procter and Gamble could be a very attractive holding for someone with a really long time period, uh, particularly for those who feel like maybe stocks are a bit more you know risky uh, venture than they prefer to, to to get into because I mean. You have a company here that's going to continue to be very relevant, I think, in our economy for many years to come. Certainly for the rest of our lifetime, I'd be surprised if not. Uh, and and as long as they can focus on doing a few things and doing them well, uh, then I think that uh, you know long-term shareholders could certainly stand to benefit. It may take a little while for them to kind of ring this all out, and they're always sort of these one-time items and sort of adjustments that you have to make, especially when you're comparing year over year and quarter over quarter as you whittle down that business. But but oftentimes that can present opportunity because there maybe is a you know a little bit of a short-sighted uh, look there versus uh, you know the way we look at things with a, a bit more of a long-term approach. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Question from Dave Hook. Listener number 98 in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. There are a number of companies that will list their stocks on more than one exchange. For example, a number of Canadian companies will list on both Canadian and U.S. exchanges. For companies like that, is there any advantage or disadvantage for buying their stock on one exchange over the other? Great question. Sure, yeah. I think uh, what he's referring to is something known as cross-listing, uh, where you know, companies can can offer uh, their their shares on multiple exchanges. And you know, there are there are benefits, there are drawbacks. I think it's it's really I think maybe the jury is still out as to whether uh, they are so quantifiable as to to really make it worth one's while to go one way or the other. I think um, when you see a company that is is listing its shares on a number of different exchanges. Certainly, one thing that comes to mind is there's going to be more liquidity, right? I mean, because there are going to be more shares trading on more markets, and that's that's generally going to mean more liquidity, which means uh, you know more more activity there, uh, more access potentially to financing and capital for these for these companies as well, um, and, and definitely just the transparency issue. There is going to be more information out there. Uh, because there are more places where they need to disclose that information. Now, I would say, like w- with the U.S. markets, I mean that's that's essentially held as the highest standard uh, for companies, you know, on which you know, for companies to to be, to be listed. Um, and so, when you see companies listed on multiple exchanges, it, they are going to have to really. I, I think that's that's something that when you. When they're listed on the United States markets, that's really, I think, a good thing. I mean, you're you're going to say, okay, well, that's that's the highest standard. We know there's going to be, you know, a certain level of recourse, a certain level of transparency, and there may be sort of a a lack of recourse on different exchanges than you might have here on U.S. exchanges, uh, and and that could potentially be a drawback there investing outside of, of U.S. exchanges. And and more than likely, with these cross listings um, outside of the United States, there will be typically some form of additional transaction cost in there. That could certainly eat into returns, and so typically, you know, we we are looking first and foremost to the U.S. exchanges, just because there isn't really a reason to do otherwise. Let's talk about the Academy Awards, which were held last night, um, and there are two business parts of this I want to get to. Um, let's start with Twitter because uh, this is one of those events that if you're uh, a Twitter user, or certainly a shareholder, you're you're looking for these events. We we talked about the World Cup last year and what a great benefit that was to Twitter's business. But 
one of the things that's getting a little bit of notice today is that Twitter has not, unless this has happened in the last couple hours, Twitter has not shared any stats about, um, as they have in the last couple of years, about here's how many tweets were sent, here's what the engagement was like, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there are some people saying, well, wait a minute, if they're not sharing that information like they were the last couple of years, then the numbers must be down for them. Oh, the company's got to be going under. It's the beginning of the end. <laughs> I don't think anyone's saying that, but I think, <laughs> but uh, you know, they're it's... going up against a tough comp. I mean, Ellen's tweet from last year was apparently the most retweeted tweet of all time. There right? There you go. Um, eesh, yeah, I mean, I think this makes for interesting water cooler talk for investing nerds like us, maybe tech nerds out there, and. San Franny or trying to develop the the next big social networking app or taking note. I, you know, the bottom line is, is this doesn't make one event doesn't make or break Twitter. I think a lot has changed with the Twitter story in in just one year, um, at least from an investing perspective. I mean, management has made a big effort here over the past few months uh, to change the message. Uh, communicating the Twitter story from from one of monthly active users to one of really the content and its ability to reach people outside of their core platform. And so, I mean, an example of this could be seen in timeline views. This used to be a metric that measured success. It was a me- it was a metric that management used to to help measure success. The problem with with this is a metric, though, it failed to keep up with any changes that were made to the platform. And and there have been a number of changes and upgrades and updates to the platform since then. And and two, it effectively. Uh, it failed to effectively capture not only engagement but really the reach of these tweets. And I think it's it's again it's that story of figuring out who's seeing Twitter content outside of that core Twitter platform. And we know it's a lot. Uh, management is is now trying to quantify that for us. And so, they give us this number, impressions. And so, uh, they talk about you know 1.8 billion impressions were seen last quarter, something like that. And basically, that's just saying, this is Twitter content that's being seen everywhere. Um, you know, It plays into their syndication strategy, certainly, which is something that they're starting to uh, roll out. And, and that's essentially working with other uh, news organizations, entertainment organizations, media organizations, and, and allowing them to take that Twitter content and publish it on their own site. And and so I think that you know at the end of the day with Twitter the way people have to view this as an investment number one it, it you think about Twitter beyond the core platform think about its its ability to to generate that content and disseminate it beyond just the core platform and and then really you know the the money does the talking right and and as it stands they are doing a great job of growing sales and and as they do that that's going to be the real indicator that there is value being seen in the platform when we see those numbers start pulling back when we see those sales numbers start pulling back that's when you really have to have to to question uh, what's going on but but yeah I think it's just it's a very different story uh, than it was even just a year ago so so, if they came out with a number today or tomorrow or the next day, and it was, you know, it was a fewer number of tweets than were seen or, or sent out last year, I don't know that I would necessarily be terribly concerned with that. Um, I think that those things are going to tend to fluctuate, and and you know, all it takes is. One good streaker at one of these events, Chris, and that could be just the that could make the difference between <laughs> between growing the number of tweets by twenty percent or falling by five. One of the all-time classic moments in Academy Awards history. Um, do, is that what you were referring to? The the, the streaker. I'm trying to remember the the name. It was a, a British actor who was on stage. He was presenting. I think it was the 1974 
Uh, David Niven. That's who it was. David Niven was presented. Is that what you're referring to? No, I, I was da- just referring to just the general nature of uh, streakers to capture uh, our hearts and minds. I, I want to say it was the 1974 Academy Awards. David Niven, just classy British actor, is on stage. He's about to make a presentation, and a guy just comes from backstage, <laughs> goes streaking across the stage, and you know, there's there's the hubbub in the auditorium, as you might imagine, and David Niven. Just brilliantly, you know, once everything calms down, just sort of uh, uh, brilliantly ad libbed and said something to the effect of um, the unfortunate uh, thing for that young man is that uh, for the rest of his life he'll be known for his shortcomings. <laughs> and just, just a brilliant ad lib by David Niven. Um, let's talk about the TV business side of the Academy Awards. I wrote on Twitter last night, as a Walt Disney shareholder, I love these this Oscars. As a fan of movies, I hate this Oscars. And we were, you and, and Dan Boyd behind the glass and I were talking before we started taping, essentially about how we would fix the Academy Awards telecast, because it is an incredibly bloated show going somewhere in the neighborhood of four hours or something like that. But again, Walt Disney, parent company of ABC, getting a reported two million dollars for a thirty-second ad spot. That's phenomenal. And you know what? Just as you said, one night, one event doesn't make or break Twitter. One night of television doesn't make or break the Walt Disney Company. And yet, if as a shareholder, I don't want this telecast going to two hours when they're getting two million bucks for a thirty-second spot. Oh no, I, I think that yeah, as, as a it's, it's fascinating how we look at the world from, from two <laughs> two vantages, right? As, as shareholders and as as consumers, and, and a lot of times those line up very well together. And this is one of those cases I would say it, it doesn't really because yeah, I didn't watch the show. I did see a lot of what was going on on Twitter just because I am on Twitter. A lot, and and so you see that going on, and it did strike me as being something that took a really, really long time. Um, I think you said what the sound of music that was your that was your tipping point. That's right? when I had yeah. <laughs> the, the, we were nearly three hours into the broadcast, and I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're gonna we're gonna get to the awards for best actor and best actress and and all that sort of thing, and they come out with a musical tribute to the sound of music, which was. Wonderfully performed. You know, for anyone who thinks that Lady Gaga is just all flash and she can't, no, she's got pipes. That woman can sing. Yeah. But again, as a viewer, I was like, okay, good night. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, I, I that that would yeah certainly would be a tipping point. Um, wow, you know, I so yeah, I, I think you see something where and Disney won. I think a did they won the award for the best animated movie, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, that seems like it happens every year. I mean, there's no shocker there. But I mean, yeah, between that and ABC, obviously commanding a, a, a healthy healthy amount of ad revenue there, I think that's that's obviously tremendous. Shareholders got they've got to feel really good about that. But but I think that yeah, we we've. We've probably hit a point where they they've got to start reeling that thing back in, or I think they're going to start losing viewers, or at least viewers are going to be migrating elsewhere. I think it's it's certainly easy to see uh, people migrating to do something like Twitter. I mean, at some point because it, it's easier, you can control it more, you can multi, you can do more with it. So I, I don't know. I, I think that you know that that sort of that TV broadcast is is maybe in its twilight. I think things are getting ready to shift. The comparison was made several times in the the red carpet show and and that sort of thing. People comparing the Academy Awards to the Super Bowl, saying this is the Super Bowl of the movie industry. That sort of I thing. I heard it put a little bit differently. <laughs> I, heard, I heard someone refer to it as the Super Bowl for 
women. Now, this is nothing against any of you women out there, because let me tell you, I love you all, okay? And I, I don't judge. I couldn't care less about the Oscars, but I saw that and thought, wow, that person's probably going to, they're, they're going to get a little blowback from that, I bet. I think you're going to get a little blowback. <laughs> well, I just said I love them all. I mean, hey. I, just, I, I, I love movies. I watch the don't Oscars shoot the every messenger, right? I, I, I watch it every year, but... Um, it. I'll. I'll make this to to bring it back to the money. I'll make this point of comparison. I, I think that, so. The day after the Super Bowl, this most recent Super Bowl, New England Patriots over the Seattle sea, uh, Seahawks. Les Moonves, the head of CBS, uh, was on CNBC, and he could not have been happier. Not because his network had the Super Bowl, but because his network has the Super Bowl next year, mm-hmm. and he was thrilled about how huge the ratings were for the most recent Super Bowl, and he was talking about how his people have already started talking to advertisers, and the bidding starts at $5 million (laughs) for a 30-second spot. And the Academy Awards, while it is a big event, and it does command millions for a 30-second spot, I don't think, to your point about, um, I'm not going to say it's in its twilight, but I do think that... It's not the same as the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is always going to have a big audience because it's an event. It's a social event. The Academy ratings matter for the Academy Awards. And if I'm an advertiser and someone is calling me about advertising on next year's Oscars, if they're trying to bump up the price from $2 million for a 30-second spot, I'm going to come back with, well, wait a minute. This was Ratings were down 10% from, the year, from a year ago. This is the lowest ratings for the Oscars in four years. They're not. They don't have all of the advantages that the Super Bowl has. They have some, but they don't have all. Yeah, no, no, not all. And I mean, I think also with the Super Bowl, it's a relatively um, understood time frame. It's, it's. It, I'm not going to say it's finite. It, I mean, it is, but it's. You go into the Oscars, I think, and you don't have any idea how long the show really is going to last. I mean, and let's be frank, they could probably do this entire thing in one hour, and everybody would be just as happy. Um, I'd be interesting to see. I'd be interested to see the the disparity between uh, the the cost of an advertisement, you know, at the beginning, at the end, versus like kind of right there around the three hour mark. Because I got to believe that three hour mark is where a lot of people start feeling like they want to check out. Uh, and and then furthermore, you got to figure a lot of those ad dollars here in the coming years are shifting obviously away from TV and towards your bigger platforms that are that are you know hosting uh, online parties or, or you know people are live tweeting or people are following it around on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And so a lot of those dollars are going to be are going to be migrating to to other to other channels as well. So I mean, yeah, I think with with the uh, with the Oscars, I mean it's. The Super Bowl gives us the two best teams, typically in football, at the end of the year. And I mean, the Oscars isn't necessarily that way. I mean, you're—I can't believe how many people get in there the next day and just criticize the the host of the show. I mean, that's got to be really intimidating to get in there and do that. And I mean, I think he's making a cool million for doing it. Uh, but but if you've ever spoken in front of a group of people, I mean, that's not the easiest thing to do. And if you got to do that for four and a half hours, I mean, that's brutal. And so it it just seems to be it just seems to be dependent on so many different things every single year, year in and year out. That uh, yeah, I think they certainly face more more challenges uh, than than any of our uh, national sporting events. Do. Well, and you, I think you just hit the nail on the head with um, the Super Bowl. You got the two best teams. In the Academy Awards, ostensibly you have the very best movies of the year, but you also have 
all of these other awards and a lot of times movies that you've never even heard of. Right. And at the end of the day, this is, I believe, all relatively political. I mean, I think there are a lot of people lobbying for, you know, their actors and their movies and their directors and their producers. And so, you know, again, at least with football, I mean, the results speak for themselves and sports, the results speak for themselves. This, it's certainly a bit more nebulous. I mean, we don't know the process. You know, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of palms being greased and a lot of people kind of being swayed one way or the other. And, so. and smear campaigns like <laughs> like i expect that in political campaigns but the fact that there that there are studios issuing these stealth smear campaigns against other movies is just bizarre to me it's nuts and i think I, you have to wonder also can they really quant- can they really quantify the the value in winning an oscar i mean does it really matter i i don't know that it does so i i I, I know this because um, this was a paper published by two professors at the college in my hometown. So this is Colby College in Waterville, Maine. And uh, this was years ago. Uh, two professors d- did an economic study and looked at what is the value of an Academy Award win, both in terms of the studio, in terms of the movie itself, and for individual actors and actresses. And there is a bump up in terms of additional box office dollars for Academy Award-winning films. So, uh, whatever Birdman took in at the box office uh, to this point, expect that it's going to bump up another maybe 10-20% on top of that as a result. But that's not a sustainable strategy. No, I guess, yeah, it helps for that isolated incident. And then further, it's obviously a good resume boost, and you can advertise that you've got an Academy Award winning director or actor or whatever. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily make it good. And um, and so that's right. Kind of fall on that. I mean, I haven't seen any of. I don't think I've seen any of the movies that were that were involved with the show last night. And I certainly couldn't tell you who directed the Birdman. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to mention uh, Motley Fool Stock Advisor, which does not have an Academy Award, but it uh, should. It, it should. totally should. You can go to marketfoolery.fool.com. Get 75 percent off Motley Fool Stock Advisor. It's our flagship investing service run by David and Tom Gardner. You get stock recommendations every month. You get Best Buys now. We've got a couple of Oscars up there, don't we? We do, uh, Yes. Uh, in our eclectically decorated uh, engineering booth, we've got all manner of decorations and posters and knickknacks and ceramic gnomes because Steve Broido... I don't know. It's you know what it's, it's Steve's decorating tastes are as eclectic as the man himself. So anyway, marketfoolery.fool.com get 75% off stock advisor Jason Moser. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Academy Award winner Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.